Greetings, future fossils. This is Michael Garfield with another special episode recorded at Boom Festival in Portugal last August. It's pretty rare that we have a guest as perfectly in sync with my own eclectic interests as today's guests. That's Dr. Rupert Till, a.k.a. Dr. Chill, the world's first PhD of electronic chill-out music, who also happens to be an archaeologist of sound, who goes around visiting ancient sites all over the world, sacred sites, and recording their reverb and acoustic properties so that he can reproduce them in virtual reality. Oh my god, it's amazing! And so, of course, we get into this whole thing in the talk about the relationship between the postmodern and the pre-modern worlds and how the world that we're moving into is actually a lot more like the world that very primitive humans and humans of antiquity lived in, which is a, a topic of constant fascination for me. This episode is really fun also because you can hear Boom Festival going on all around us and you really get a sense of the urgency and the common driving beat that underlies that entire week-long event and in general uh, international psychedelic trance dance culture which is a major part of the transformation that we're going through as a human species right now and if you don't believe me then just uh, email me and i'm happy to argue with you about it or even better join our facebook group for the future fossils podcast and you can come have all sorts of wonderful discussions with all kinds of interesting people we have a really cozy and interesting group of folks discussing all of these episodes over there Another note, of course, is if you enjoy this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play, wherever you're listening to this, your reviews help other people find this podcast. And that's super important to how enjoyable the discussions about these episodes are for you. Also, Future Fossils is just one corner of an entire media ecosystem that I'm working on with a couple of friends and supporting through the sponsorship of people like you at patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. There's a book about how to live in the future. There are electronic and acoustic musical components and visual art components and just whatever I can think to do to explore these ideas from a number of different dimensions, including 360 photo and video stuff. All of that is going to get woven in and offered a lot of it exclusively to subscribers of the Patreon campaign. So if you want to support the podcast, subscribe to us, join us over at Patreon, but more importantly, enjoy this incredible conversation about the deep history and deep future of our species and how ecstatic collective ritual binds us together into the body of something greater than ourselves. Everybody, this is Dr. Chill on Future Fossils. Well, 
Well, greetings, everybody. This is Michael Garfield with the Future Fossils podcast and special Boom Festival edition. And I am here with Dr. Rupert Till, AKA Dr. Chill of the University of Huddlesfield. Uh, An absolutely rare and interesting cat I met backstage at the Chill Out Gardens while I was getting ready for my set and he was getting ready for his. So Dr. Chill, it's a pleasure to have you on the the show, man. Yeah, great to be here. So we haven't actually talked about what this podcast is so much, but for me, the whole framing thing is that it's fascinating that we're living in this age of uh, an increasing emphasis on recording our environments and situating ourselves in this eternal moment where this increasingly high fidelity archive of our histories and this increasingly high fidelity modeling of our futures is making uh, what Douglas Rushkoff calls present shock, like when everything happens now. And that this, this expanding horizon of time around us leads the dorks among us, myself included, into an inquiry about how the world will remember this as a unique moment in time, you know, a moment where our ideas of time changed in a profound way. And so on this podcast, we just spend a lot of, you know, we, we go all over the place and we're welcome to take this conversation any way we want. But I think uh, often I, I find myself coming back to questions about our own relationship to the past and to the future and to the ideas that we have about them and how those ideas might change and how the way that we understand ourselves might change as we age and, and evolve and so forth. So. But please, let's start uh, by, why don't you tell people like a little bit about who you are and the work that you do and, and your story. Where, you, where do you come from? What's, what's going on? Sure, I, I started off as a kind of minimalist composer. I studied with a guy called Gavin Grose and studied with John Cage. So I was always into kind of sound and acoustics and writing music. Um, and I kind of drifted into a, an area of research called music archaeology and sound archaeology. Um, so I've been working for the last five years or so on constructions or reconstructions of of the ancient past. Working to start with on sound really, on working with ancient musical instruments, reconstructions of things archaeologists have found that are musical instruments from prehistoric times, the Bronze Age, from antiquity, classical, Greece and Rome. And then I started working with kind of computer games modelers as well and building 3D environments that you can walk around interactively using graphical design but then and using game engines um, but then integrating accurate acoustics into it as well so taking recordings of these ancient instruments adding the collect, correct reverberation so kind of digitally rebuilding a, a, a Greek temple for example a Greek camping theatre and then recording uh, a guy playing reconstructions of Greek instruments like Aulos, or which are a pair of like oboe-like instruments, um, and putting then reconstructing the acoustics of the digital model of the amphitheatre, and then putting it all together so you can wander around. So yeah, it's giving people an idea of what it was like to be somewhere in the past, but in terms of sound, as much so or more so than image. <laughs> yeah. So there's there's a totally perfect example of that uh, 
convolution of past and future. The more that we uh, stride into these high technology artificial environments, the more we find ourselves using them to reconstruct the prehistory of these spaces. But you're also you're also uh, an electronic music producer. Yeah, I mean you're out here playing at, at the Chilla Garden. So you work the stuff into your work as a producer as well. Yeah, so I mix it all up. I've, I've made, made, I'm making a series of five albums of this ancient music, but I wanted to kind of bring it to a wider public as well. So uh, I've integrated things like uh, bone flutes made out of mammoth bone and vulture bone from up to 43,000 years ago, the oldest musical instruments in the world, um, and integrated those into kind of electronic chill-out sets with, with uh, dub beats and big pads and electronic sounds. So, so exactly that, using cutting-edge technology, but accessing also very ancient pasts and, and memories. I guess for me, the more that we know about understanding what was going on in the ancient past tells us something about what's happening today. If we, I'm interested in looking at what was similar then to now, what, what people were doing, what it has resonances with what's happening today, I guess. So like, what have you personally learned by moving around in these archaeological acoustic virtual realities? I mean, it's fascinating. You go into a place like a cave, which has got these cave paintings in, but you went into some of them with archaeologists, and usually you see pictures of these on websites or magazines or whatever, on people's walls, and they seem very accessible and easy to get to. But in reality, you have to climb down a hole with a harness, and you have to go down nether courts and ladders, but you're climbing. It takes you like 45 minutes, even with ropes and ladders and torches and flashlights. It still takes ages to get to these things. When you finally get to the cave painting that's a mile underground or whatever, you appreciate how much effort it took people, how seriously they were taking these journeyings into the dark and into the other world, and into kind of other places to to make their art and have a different kind of experience. So I guess I've I've came to the appreciation of how seriously people took those that their ritual life in the past, um, and actually how how close to where we are now. I mean, you start to talk to archaeologists, and you start to look at these things, and you realise it's a it's a blink of an eye in terms of the history of the world. We, we haven't changed nearly as much as as we thought, and I've realised that I'm much closer to the people who made those things. Now you see things like a cave painting where they do hand stencils where they put pigment in the mouth and kind of blow it out, put like an air gun onto it with the hand against the wall so you get an outline of your hand and you can see the fingernail, you can see the thumbnail. <laughs> and you can, on one there was, you can see there was a bracelet on someone's wrist and the bracelet's very much, looks very much like the kind of wristband that I've been given a boon to wear to show that I'm here. So it's like, <laughs> You feel so close to those people because I think historically they're shown as these ancient, prehistoric, simple people. But of course they weren't. They had to live without the technology we had today. They must have been incredibly inventive. Oh yeah, I mean I remember reading recently that the uh, the brain of the Cro-Magnon, the people of our same species, but of that you know 40,000, 50,000 years old, or or you know roughly around there that their brain cases were larger than ours. 
And you know, I was talking about this in a talk I gave at Liminal Village yesterday because it's all about this, this thing of how as we move into more complex artificial environments, you know, like Marshall McLuhan said, every technology is a prosthetic, you know, and an amputation. And so we're gaining something, but we're losing something else. You know, that uh, the, the size of the jaw got smaller in human beings in the West when we invented the fork, but it got smaller in human beings in the East, like a thousand years or more earlier, uh, or 2000 years earlier, because they invented chopsticks that much earlier than we invented the fork. You know, and that like the brain case shrank proportionally as we started inventing more and more ways of organizing our knowledge through the written word. And now it looks like, you know, the, if, if Ray Kurzweil is correct, then more and more of the actual brain material inside of the head is gonna get replaced with some other like, you know, digital computing substrate. And that more and more the, the actual organismal human is like a, an image or a vestige attached to this trans, self-transforming process. And I mean, I'm very aware that we're very cybernetic, that I'm using drum machines and electronics to make music and um, that we use all sorts of digital technology to enhance our, our human body to allow us to do other things. But obviously our sense of smell is much, it's much more basic than people's would have been back then. I think human smell's definitely not as sensitive, but hearing similarly when you start to venture into these oral cultures, oral with an O and oral with an A about your ears. And mm. They were just used to passing on information from speaking to each other and hearing so much. I mean, at night when you're in these caves, you can't see much, so you're using your ears all the time to navigate your way around the place, to get an understanding of where you are. And if, you're, if you're out hunting at night, hearing is vital. You're going to hear a dangerous predator way before you see them. Mm. We're so surrounded by so much noise nowadays. Um, I think we miss some of that. Some of the caves I've been in have been the most remarkable acoustic places because they're so silent. I mean, they're, they're astonishingly quiet. No drop of water. They're, they were so quiet that our noise meter couldn't couldn't measure. It was it was reading the lowest it could read. Wow. It was the noise floor of the electronics was all it was measuring. So it was basically <laughs> silent. I remember coming out of this one cave and I was in a hurry because I you go down to an archaeological site you can't you can't pee anyway, you know. So <laughs> after four hours down this cave I was in a hurry to get out. It takes 40 minutes to get out. So by the end I was kind of racing a bit and I, I went around this corner to get out and suddenly apart from the bright light that's astonishing it's like someone's turned on the world in terms of volume you go around this corner and the screaming volume of the french countryside was astonishing and all, all you could hear was a bit of wind and the odd bird tweeting but it was so loud i've never heard <laughs> suddenly you hear nature like come at you like a wave as you go around this corner and that that was also incredibly powerful it's, the difference between the kind of sensory deprivation of the dark, mm. no sound and no sight, you know? and then it makes you appreciate the world again. I guess a bit like coming here to a to Boone, where there's it's less easy to have water or showers or heat or electricity. So you appreciate it more when you go back when you've lived a simple life for a while. Um, I can understand that when people went into the dark of the caves, that when they came out, they appreciated sound and people and light so much more. 
a process of journeying somewhere else to go somewhere in isolation and then come back to the world, going into the liminal space and then returning again. Again, it's something that kind of I've been talking about here in Boom, and I think it's a big part of what's happening at this festival and in most. And that rediscovery of ritual is another thing that's going on in this this reenchantment of the world, this rediscovery of that whole bit about you coming out of the cave and, and being sort of overwhelmed by the sound of, a, of the countryside reminded me of when I was, I was arrested a few years ago in Texas and held overnight in jail. And I was, you know, in there for like 17 hours or so. Not, you know, not like a real serious stint, you know, but when I was released, it, the sun, it was the golden hour in central Texas, and it was just this beautiful land, and I had this real clear sense of, you know, I may disagree with these people and their decisions to criminalize my life as a cannabis user, but I understand why they uh, feel the need to protect this place. Because, like, after 17, year, 17 hours in, you know, this, like, sterile, white-painted, concrete, fluorescent box, you know, mostly dark, sleeping, you know, trying to, like, use a, a roll of toilet paper as a pillow, I got out and I fell to my knees and kissed the ground and cried. It was, like, so, so beautiful to have that experience of contrast. And out of that that experience of contrast, I realized that in a, in, at least in American society where we are so divorced from tradition and history and have really made that our national character to be more focused on the future than the past, that we, we have dissociated ourselves from a lot of things that are really valuable to the human experience and one of them notably is the rite of passage into adulthood. And I found it kind of interesting that like when you think about how when you refuse some uh, developmental opportunity, then it, it, it's going to happen anyway. It's just going to happen as imposed upon you from the outside. It's going to appear as some sort of like horrible fate that's beset you. And in a, in a strange way, that arrest and my um, consequent uh, two years of probation you know, happened right around my Saturn return when it's very much about that. It's like if you haven't taken, if you don't take this responsibility of like initiation into yourself, then it will be imposed upon you because now is the time for you to move on to the next phase of your life. And it just occurred to me that what I had just gone through was in a very real sense, the only legitimate rite of passage available to many modern Americans. You know, we're in this horrible drug war situation and like I know so many people for whom their moment of initiation into adulthood was arrest. You know, and that, that, that fits very much into later when I was reading about the Way of Merlin and, you know, the magical traditions of ancient England, um, you know, a very strong emphasis in, in the Merlin mythology on his imprisonment and containment by, by the, um, I forget the name of the king, but that there's this recurring theme in esoteric initiation of having to be like trapped put underground and that's like it, it it's absolutely something coming from those those old cave mystical rituals yeah and a lot of folk we have lost well we've lost so many rituals i think because the rituals that we 
that we had. Well, in the West, they were very bound up with Christianity that got so linked to to kind of the political state and, uh, and post the Enlightenment, the whole thing kind of morphs into the modern experiment of trying to control the world instead of find ways to to become who, who we become. Those rituals of rites of passage of, of becoming it are either so bound up with traditions that a lot of people feel alien to nowadays or they're just not really present. Uh, the idea of ritual is, was kind of presented as old-fashioned and passé and you know we don't need to do that sort of thing anymore but I think one of the things about looking at looking at the past is you start to understand that ritual is technology, is absolutely community technology. It's, um, the archaeologists talk, were telling me that the development of music happens at about 43,000 years ago. That's the first, the first evidence we have. But it's this incredible time of development where humans are competing with it. So it's probably a bit older than that. Because, you know, you have the odd bone left over, but there's probably things earlier. Mm. So it seems to be developing the same time as humans are competing, out-competing Neanderthals. Mm. And one of the reasons that, that humans out-competed them is they had a technology that Neanderthals didn't have. And the technologies were art and music and, and community. And music in particular was a technology that bonded human communities together. Doing things like making music together, having rituals together, making art together, all that, it seems all that stuff was bound up. There wasn't ritual and music and art, it was one thing, much like in many traditional cultures. Um, but anyway, this, this technology appears at the same time as shelter, at the same time as death rituals, at the same time as developments in tool making in humans. And it's the technology that allows that information to be passed on from generation to generation. But, so to kind of rethink and reinterpret ritualist technology for community, for pulling communities together to make us communal people rather than isolated individuals, <laughs> is absolutely vital. I mean, that's that's how humanity got going. And I think today the idea, well. The modern experiment has suggested, no, no, we can just be individuals, have our own look-after-yourself world, and it's the way forward. But it, that's the kind of existential crisis of the modern world, isn't it? Of always looking for the new. Is well, the new doesn't always work. Nuclear weapons <laughs> and, and modern and new and technological haven't worked out that well. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I hear so many futurists talk about the Arthur C. Clarke's uh, third law that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. You know, and they, they, they only use it in reference to like quantum computers or, you know, talking about this wond wondering, puzzling, awing at the cell phone. You know, that kind of thing. Like the cell phone as sort of an emanation of the same spiritual archetype as, as Arthur C. Clarke's monolith in 2001, A Space Odyssey. You know, it's bigger on the inside than on the outside. Oh my God. But like, it's full of stars. But they, uh, but you know, it occurred to me just listening to you now that ironically, in its efforts to suppress and uh, differentiate itself from pre-modern superstition, the modern experiment, as you put it, 
failed to recognize the high technology of ritual that it's like it it didn't you know it regarded this this ancient and very uh in the in a sort of modern design sense ergonomic technology a technology that evolved with us as human beings and is actually in many ways a much more sophisticated technology than any modern invention that we failed to recognize it for what it was and we threw the baby out with the bathwater by believing that ritual was merely superstitious and not the enactment of a holistic cosmovision you know that it wasn't something essential that bound us to one another and to the world around us and you know we ended up throwing away something upon which we rely and now that we're sort of liquefying the modern world into the postmodern internet of things you know and we're experiencing this phase transition we have this sort of need to reclaim all of these ancient technologies in order to stabilize ourselves as we move forward into a much more hyper-connected and communal space that's organized much more musically than it is rationally yeah i mean it, I, and i think scientists they've started to see things like people performing open heart surgery with acupuncture is the only painkiller and it's like well okay so these ancient some of these ancient technologies and biologies they they clearly work and they've found various traditional medicines haven't they that have now been scientifically proven to be proven to be true but of course they were scientifically proven to be true hundreds of years ago when they were used for hundreds of years as effective cures uh, I, I mean i came into this stuff really in some ways from research into an electronic dance music and why it was that that's kind of quite ritualized in, in its practices and I, I teach popular music for a living and it became clear that because there are a few rituals in Western culture, youth culture in particular, it started to ritualize its own practices or build its own ritual lives. So the sort of techno-shamanism that goes on on the dance floor here, however you want to describe it, is very clearly kind of ritual activity of some kind or another. It's quite complicated and structured and has elements of spirituality and religiosity. It's very different traditional rituals and traditional religions. Um, and that's what seems to happen. When, when you remove ritual from the world, rituals start to develop. One of the difficulties is if, if they develop around something that's not designed to be a ritual or not aware that it's a ritual, then you get ritual culture building up around, I don't know, heroin abuse or drug dealing or whatever, which isn't always always positive or people end up being put into the position of a priest when they're, you know, they're, they're a pop star who's just making tunes or whatever and suddenly people listen to what they say and it becomes complicated. So it's interesting to be here somewhere like Boom where they're kind of embracing it, they're kind of talking about it and discussing it and inviting people to talk about futurism. Talk about the past, the present, the future, talking about shamanism and the latest network technologies. So it's, it's quite an exciting, varied place to be. Yeah, I'm actually really impressed with the way that this festival has brought in, for lack of a better word, uh, wisdom keepers, the traditions on five different continents, you know, elders within their own uh, practice of indigenous medicine tradition, and that these people are, you know, uh, holding ceremonies and uh, you know holding space throughout the event and around the event and I, I went out and I spent some time 
out, they, they built a sacred fire, I guess as they do every year here, and down by the water, and they've created this, this ceremonial place for the ritual performance of prayer through the release through flame. And, you know, I, I had this really profound experience there talking with the, the old woman who lived on this land, Ides, the, she's, she's lived here for 29 years, and she's been the firekeeper here since this festival began. And to have, to listen to her stories really anchored the experience of this event for me in a way that like, I, I found severely absent, painfully absent from like every single festival I've ever attended in the United States where, you know, people are aware that they are missing this and they're trying to reconstitute it. But it's just like, you know, it's in that sense of like, ecological succession and each more complex rich ecology is built out of the the sort of mulch of the prior that we just don't our soils just aren't deep enough yet for this only really in the american uh visionary culture do we have now a second and a third generation that we can look back to and you know we can point kids my age and younger can look at people like Sasha and Ann Shulgin as these legendary psychonauts or, you know, Stan Groff or Alex and Allison Gray. And we finally have elders in the scene, but you know, even that isn't like quite ripe yet because they had no elders, you know? So we're gonna be really, in some sense, the first generation that actually inherited something, you know? And like, what a, what a profound responsibility that is. And that's like a huge part of, why I feel called to do this podcast in particular is like, shit, let's like interview, let's let's collect as much of the, the wisdom of these people as we can and pass it on with, with the full knowledge that one day we will be in this position of, you know, tr- transmitting the, the, the wisdom in our own sort of life story, you know. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I mean, I came here first time in 2000, so it's 16 years and I'm realizing there could be children here who are 16 now coming here who were conceived then, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's kind of strange. My set, my set finishes with a cover of a kind of electronic BT dubby cover of Woodstock, the Jenny Mitchell song, mm. and which I did because the lyrics resonated so much with what happens in these kind of festivals today. I mean, Woodstock was over 16, so six, thirty-seven years ago, something like that. Um, this, the anniversary was yesterday. And I, I see people dancing here, and I see, see the Woodstock film, and people dance in the same way, people look the same, long hair's come back in, and mm-hmm. hips the beards have come back in, and, and people wandering around without shirts on, and there's people in the mud and swimming naked and walking around without clothes on, just like at Woodstock. And, so, and the people who went to Woodstock would now be probably in their 70s, most of them. My old head of music in the department I worked in was the thing to Woodstock. But the Woodstock grew up into all these rock festivals that are hugely commercial and I mean, they're liminal spaces and people prepare and then go and they're quite ritualised. But the ritual's very much about selling product and whether it's the albums of the huge acts that are performing or the uh, or kind of selling the food and the beer, most of which is pretty terrible quality. And so it that's an example of something that's become ritualized and it's not a great ritual. It's it's kind of quite poor in its in its spiritual depth sort of thing. A lot of fun people go, they get something, it's it's an important cultural thing I think. It's you know, these things range from the more I 
know, progressive to the more commercial, but um, there are examples that are really transformative. The Glastonbury Festival in England is amazing. There's lots of Buddha Fields Festival in England, Buddhist festival that's part music, part Buddhist retreat. There are lots all over the world. The Eclipse Festival is quite different. People are sort of chasing eclipses, which I think is it's an amazing thing. They pop up following eclipses rather than based on a kind of normal timetable, which is quite cool. In the States, you've got the Burning Man, right? Which yeah. An astonishing thing, really. Yeah, although even there, like, you know, I've, I've come to this understanding working within primarily the United States festival culture, and even, you know, within that as a subset of festivals that are really attempting to set themselves apart from these like large kind of commercial factory farm type events, you know, that um, there are as many kinds of festivals as there are cultures that hold festivals. In Japan, you have cherry blossom festivals. They don't even look, you know, like in, in Davis, California, since 1969, they've been holding a whole earth festival, which was started by Jose Arguelles. It's a free family event. I mean, there's vendors, but it's like held on the university campus and it's completely different. It's like children running around barefoot in the grass and it's, it's still got this, this uh, you know, no, you know, the difference between a festival where tickets are sold, you know, and like where they aren't and what that says about the context in which these liminal spaces are allowed within the society, you know, like the amount, the way that the society is structured to uh, require, um, you know, the rental of land that you can't throw an event like this without a major commercial investment that has to be recouped, you know, and I think I wrote an, uh, an article years ago where I said basically that I think in the same way that you can tell a lot about a culture by how we treat our elderly, our children, and our insane, these people who have supposedly no immediate value to the workings of your productive core of the, the society, that you can tell a lot about festivals and it and in, in fact it's the very notion that the elderly the insane and the children are of no value to culture is a cultural artifact created by my own commercial nightmare zone you know it's like it's equally true in other cultures that you know that they really cherish uh you know, the, what we call the insane as like people that have been touched by spirit and perform this particular, you know, shamanic function. And that the elderly are the, are the wisdom keepers and the children have so much to learn, have so much to teach their parents. And that in those kind of cultures, that the festivals are held in a very different way because they're understood within this holistic fabric. The art is understood as part of this ritual that connects us to one another and to into the cosmos. Whereas in a, in a dissociated culture like the one that I, I live in, most of the West seems to live in, including Boom, but Boom is making a real, you know, admirable, concerted, organized effort to, to move past this kind of stuff to raise money to buy the land, you know, to, to you know, composting toilets and, and on-site food gardens. And I mean, it's a, it's a really different looking festival uh, from anything I've seen. But like in these cultures where people are aware of how everything fits together, then the festival is, is a holiday, like a holy day as, you know, celebrating a place in time. 
And I feel like the reemergence of ecstatic festivals like this, you know, like Psytrance, etc., has a lot to do with our increasingly conscious yearning for relocating the human life and the human culture in time in an, in an ecstatic order, in a way of like celebrating the passage of time. Yeah, I mean, there was a, there was a great book by Barbara Ehrenreich called Dancing the Streets, where she's a history of collective joy. Mm, yeah, I heard she, about that. And she goes through sort of traditions writing in the Western, in the Western church. There were people who used to dance in church and they got a bit messy, so they said, right, you can only dance in the churchyard and have these holy days where you can have where you can dance in the churchyard, so they had religious festivals where they could do that, and people were specifically choosing times when you'd have these kind of events. Um, I think the importance of dissolving yourself with other people in dance and music, and kind of getting away from ego and letting yourself go into the group and making music together, it's absolutely vital. Uh, again, I, th I think culture kind of missed that, and as music culture especially became more individualised and people were listening to records at home instead of dancing to them together or playing music together as a group of musicians. The, I think electronic dance music has been a response to that, the, the call back to the dance floor, to the, to the merger into the group with letting go of yourself and sort of reaching out to see what you can learn from being more open to other people. It's really, really powerful, and I think that's something that's always, always been there in tradition. It seems that trance is a universal human attribute that we are kind of our brains are programmed to trance to go into trance-like states or ecstatic states. But it's a, it's a biological response to certain stimulus. Our brain will is just kind of structured that it, it will go into trances, and that they're not meaningless things. They're not sort of mythical things. They're an important part of, of this psychic toolkit that we need in order to be healthy human beings. And it, sadly, in contemporary Western culture, it's one of those things that was pushed out into you know, old-fashioned things we don't need. Um, but it's quite hard to get back to grips with that when it's not, but because one of the things you need to go into a trance is a cultural expectation that it will happen. So without those sort of growing up into the traditions where you know that from time to time this will happen, it, it's hard to kind of reconstruct that, I think, rebuild it. It's taken a few generations to these kind of psychedelic cultures to re-emerge and to become substantial and accepted and, and legalised and part of, the, part of our world again. What role has trans played for you in your life? Because, I mean, you're, you're sitting here in front of this like sort of massive like ecosystem of musical interfaces here and you know as a producer you have to have a different vision of it than someone who's actually down on the dance floor but i imagine that you that in making this music and in participating in this scene that you're you also do spend a considerable amount of time out in the audience as well so like how has this played both into your your experience of it on the receiving end and how you understand what it is that you're actually offering people yeah i mean i, I started going to clubs when i was and at 15, going to birthday parties in clubs and dancing to electronic pop music at the time, you know, New Order, Frank Goes to Hollywood, wherever it was, kind of early electronic music, of disco and stuff, and you'd hear in clubs, and 
and so I've always danced and I've always enjoyed kind of losing myself on the dance floor a bit and I think making music I've always been aware of those experiences where you're caught up in the music and you lose track of time and for me losing track of time is is the number one sign, sign that you're uh, kind of in a trance of some state so I think of trance very much as a continuum not like you're either in a trance and you're like some shaman off in another world or you're not in a trance for me it's very much a continuum and, and for example I don't know you can be just caught up in something anything and just kind of mildly lose track of time because of it so you suddenly think oh is that the time I thought that was I thought that was five minutes it's been half an hour I'm now <laughs> everybody's had that experience I had that experience coming over here talking to a pretty girl I was like oh, wait a minute wait a minute I've got an interview <laughs> holy shit the Greeks are great because the Greeks often have more than one word for things where we only have one word so the Greeks have two words for time Kairos and Kronos mm. so Kronos is quantitative time the time that ticks on a clock that has you know that that, is, that we live in most of the time and Kairos is qualitative time so it's it's time that is uh, when you're in a moment it's 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 time that has has quality it's that time when you're lost in a moment of time so when time seems to change and expand and the Greeks were aware that that time is a different sort of time just as Einstein is aware they're different kinds of time you know time is not the simple thing at all so Time is, uh, I've kind of always been aware of the way that time gets manipulated, especially at Europe, but when you're making, making music. And, and I become, became aware ages ago that when I'm sat playing the piano, lose track of time. I could, I'm totally in another headspace in terms of time. And as I looked into trance more and started to tra study trance and write about trance, I became aware that that's kind of how trance works and that we all do trance. You know, when you're half asleep, you're daydreaming, you're trancing, you're looking out the window at school because you're bored because someone's talking about something you don't care about. You go into a, a different time. But when you're dancing on the dance floor, you're entrained to other people. So you're given a new pulse. Instead of the ticking of the clock, you have the banging of the bass drum. And, or the, the, t the time of, of crotchets, of beat, musical beats, whatever kind of music it is. And you, through your movements, through your physical movements, you, you entrain, you time yourself to that music. Your body becomes linked specifically to the music. And because everyone else is doing the same thing, you're also linking to them. So I've become quite aware of that whole process and I try to achieve that with my music. So I do things to manipulate time signatures and the chill out stuff. So there's two or three time signatures and two or three beats. So although there's there's motion in terms of the music ticking along, it also feels quite static. Mm. So that I'm deliberately trying to pick, take people out of their, out of a simple linear one, two, three, four sense of time or, or ticking of the clock day to day sense of time. For me, that's what music's about. And I think when I start to think about the ancient stuff, I start to realise that and the word music isn't relevant. Music's modern term. Music's like, I don't know, a few hundred years old or a couple of thousand years old, which is nothing at all. And it doesn't really apply as a term. That music and the term religion is difficult as well. Music and spirituality. Music is spirituality. Spirituality is music. There's almost no spiritual spiritual ritual that doesn't have music involved in it. Mm. So, sitting at the piano and playing music or doing a performance is automatically, for me, spiritual activity. Whether that's a secular spiritual activity or a sacred one, again, those 
boundaries don't make a lot of sense really. And I think it's those lack of boundaries, the world you're talking about, mm. the future meets the past. Those boundaries starting to dissipate and degrade and it's a good thing, I think. <laughs> so I, bear with me, because I, I hope this doesn't take too long to like articulate, but the two nights that I went out to the Sacred Fire here at the festival, the first night I was thinking about how this is, you know, this is my first trip to Europe and I'm gaining some real perspective on the difference between the quote unquote old world and new world. You know, landing in Lisbon and looking around and seeing that the streets are all paved, they're not paved, the sidewalks are made out of mosaic. You know, and that in some sense it's because it's this sort of like very poor country, but it's all of these buildings are like original Art Nouveau facades. And it just, it kind of made me cry because in Austin, you know, it's like, it's hard to afford a place that's over 20 years old. You know, it's like the, the history is like rare and precious and everything else is this like, you know, ephemeral clapboard bullshit that we've erected to maximize the profit of a particular patch of land. And then like, you know, all the, all the streets, you know, dragging my bag of guitar pedals around Lisbon to stay with my couch surfing host. And I get to his place through this like convoluted alley of mosaic roads. And, and then later I was reflecting on such a big part of the conversation in the, you know, in like the Silicon Valley, you know, future minded part of American culture right now is around uh, automated vehicles, driverless cars. And it just occurred to me that there's something about the metaphor of how much more difficult it's going to be for driverless cars to actually make their way onto these like janky, organic, weird, winding, back alley, narrow European roads than they are on these like clean, new, wide paved American highways that it's like there's, it's, it's a, uh, it's an interoperability error due to a, you know, an asynchrony in the, the way that time is experienced by both cultures. And I was talking about this with a guy who, uh, has has 20 hectares of land and a hotel down in Colombia and he's very he's very much at peace with his life he's very much made it back to land I was like I wonder how much longer it's gonna take for the you know Tesla autopilot type stuff Google self-driving cars to make their way into Lisbon and he's like yeah because these are human roads you know and like what you have in the United States are machine roads you know and so the next night I went back to the fire Everyone was sitting around playing like reggae and, and uh, you know, uh, some like uh, kirtan type stuff. You know, there were like four or five guitars and some drummers and everyone was, you know, singing together. It's real simple songs. And I was trying to think, do I have a really simple song that I can contribute to this? And I do, I had one. And it seemed really appropriate because it's a song about self-expression and, and releasing the shadow and confronting things and facing them. It, you know, it's time to, time to, you know, own these things to allow it all to express itself. And I was, I had asked to play the song, but they were, you know, they were, they had, there was like a line of people waiting to sing something. And finally my turn came and my friends were all about to leave and I'm like, no, no, it's okay, I'll leave. And they grabbed me and they pulled me down and they put the guitar in my hands. And I'm like, okay, well, I guess I'll play it. Only the thing is, the song is in 5-8 with a bridge in 12. 
And so, like, suddenly it's like I just fucking completely killed the vibe. Like, there's like 50 people around this campfire that have been like in this sort of joyous campfire sing along thing for an hour and a half. And like, as soon as I started playing, it was like you could hear like the needle scratch the record. You know, it's like, ugh, ugh, like what? It was so embarrassing, but at the same time, it was like one of these real clear insights where I experienced firsthand this backward compatibility issue between America and Europe. There was like that there was, or between like, you know, the modern human constitution and this sort of weird meta-industrial thing that I happen to be living in. It was just like, it was so palpable the way that, that my song just completely fell flat and this girl on the drum was like trying to figure out a beat in five and could not compound the two and the three. Couldn't wrap around it, you know? And I was just like, oh my God. I felt like such a fool for not realizing that in advance, you know? Music, I guess music in this sort of context has, often it has function and it's quite a specific function. I mean, I, the music you probably hear in the background on this recording is, the main dance floor and it just kind of goes bomb da da dum ba da dum ba da dum ba da dum ba da dum It's too fast for me, I can't dance at that speed. It's 160 beats per minute and it's... I just see people shuffling from foot to foot, but maybe you just have to be younger and more energetic in the mood to be able to dance that one. You just cut it in half. Dance yeah. dance to the Andante uh, 80 BPM rhythm. It's too slow though. So <laughs> it's not 80 at the company. Yeah, yeah. It's to be 180, then you've got drum and bass and you dance in half to foot. It's, it has a function. And so all the music to an external ear might sound quite similar, but of course the people on the dance floor, they know Ace Ventura from Rinkadink or whoever the different DJs are, their own style within it. But it, it, it has a function for people to go on that dance floor and dance to the same thing, the same beat for hour after hour. One of my friends was on the dance floor for five hours dancing to Ace Ventura, who's you know, one of the big trance DJs. And I mean, that's clearly a trance experience. He's not the sort of guy who would conceptualize it in any way as a spiritual thing, but obviously when you do that, especially if you've uh, sort of taken psychoactive substances, you're dissolving yourself completely into this other world and you come out. Um, you're bound to be a different person each time you do that in some ways, or you have the potential to be, to mm. change the... Yeah, musical functions kind of do. I guess if you're doing a set in a bar in, in Austin or something, then it's a very different. Fun the music has a very different function than if you're sat around a sort of a sacred fire where yeah. people, like, music to sing along to you know, yeah. is is another thing. But music's often taken away from that context. In fact, I work a lot with classical musicians for whom the idea of context is anathema completely. It's like. <laughs> no, music doesn't have purpose. Music is pure. It's just there to be music. I write my music for the sake of music. And in some way, to give it functional purpose denigrates it in some way. It makes it uh, lesser. But isn't that... Isn't that the there's room for both and. It doesn't have to be either book. But. but doesn't that... I mean, isn't that point of view the, like, you know, the supposed anthropological view from nowhere that, like, somehow you can go into this culture and observe them and not bring your own cultural bias to this situation? That the idea that music isn't... That the music is in some way, uh, you know, pure and, 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 you know, without context is like ignoring the fact that you're writing it for yourself, who is a different person than you are now, and therefore the, an intended audience. And of course, the anthropologists are all Western rich elites going into some much poorer place where 
they're taking their Western mind view. In every case, there's no such thing as a tabula rasa in that way. There's no blank slate. You mm -hmm. can't walk into a place and not bring your own your own shit with you, basically. So, so yeah, obviously, in, in that situation, in a very set culture, the music is there for for high-class elites, for very educated, wealthy people to provide a concept that gives them cultural authority. They can say, oh yes, I've heard of Stockhausen or, <laughs> or Fabern or, or Shakespeare or whatever, but therefore I am a, uh, I'm a culturally intelligent person and can pass through certain doors with, with ease, socially or culturally. So it has a massive context and it's all about stamping your identity with and authority, but it's not presented in that way, obviously. Whereas I think a lot of vernacular cultures quite happily say, oh, that's dance music, music to dance to. It doesn't have to be um, intellectually challenging, it has to be challenging to your feet and to your groove and whatever. So yeah, it's, it, it takes it to a different place. The old, and I guess when you have music that's been like that for hundreds of years, if it's a, they were playing some Portuguese folk music around that fire, I think. I went and was like, okay, I don't know these songs, but all the Portuguese people do, and they're all singing along. And I guess they would have been old Portuguese folk songs, but that's a mad guess because I didn't understand the language. But um, having those sort of, those folk traditions that are several hundred years old is, is good in those, all sorts of rituals. I mean, a lot of fairs and festivals and events go back to earlier traditions. There's a massive Spanish and Portuguese festival culture. Their festas happen all the time. You know, it's a weekend, it'll be some Saints' Day festival where there'll be food and drink. And, and there's a strong tradition of the uh, summer fairs in England. A lot of the music festivals in the UK came out of. I think some of the American ones echo those to some extent. The world is, you know, little community village fairs originally. Yeah. And yeah, that there's all. I mean, this this festival. When I was first getting into electronic music in the mid 90s, the Portuguese trance festivals were legendary, and people who would go around Europe going from festival to festival would all end up at the end of the summer in the Portuguese hills at these very small Portuguese trance festivals that were kind of legendary places where you would go and kind of lose yourself and find yourself on some strange, you know, Brazilian um, psychedelic or something. Mm. So there's quite, Boom has, I think, really quite a long lineage here. And the, as you say, the drawing upon these, some much older traditions. But it's interesting they often draw upon traditions from the far, from the far east. Yeah. Or from an Indian subcontinent or from Africa or Australia or whatever. It's the European traditions have become so deconstructed. Difficult, especially uh, difficult to re-energize it. There's an interview I read with Goa Gill a while back, and you know, it, it seems so obvious from the interview that like Goa trance could have occurred nowhere else on the planet than on a beach in India. That you know, that there's something about the pace of that lifestyle and their relationship to you know full moon ecstatic ceremony. And that the fact that he, you know, he said very specifically, he's like, I don't ever play festivals because 
my sets are designed to be at least 24 hours long. I'm taking people through a, a full circadian rhythm, <laughs> and so I can't, um, you know, I can't play a, a festival time slot and have it mean a damn, you know. And it just reminds me of, um, I forget the name of it, but have you have you seen or heard or read uh, David Byrne's book on music? Uh, yes, sir. Yeah. He talks, I can't remember the name of the book. Either. Yeah, but you know, he's just talking about how how dependent various genres are on the acoustic spaces you know and like in that sense we're you know this conversation has come full circle that like arena rock couldn't really only make sense in an arena you know and yeah and this festival we're at is ties into that sense of space and place because goa was a portuguese colony and it's brought that trance music kind of here to like from there to portugal wherever they are they're in a culture that has a very relaxed constitution uh, for time you know that that really emphasizes Kairos to balance that Kronos you know yeah. maybe get inspired rather than jealous yeah yeah so like it'd be kind of nice to we're at 55 minutes you know we wrap it up around an hour the one thing that comes for me, like looking to the future at the end of these conversations, as I, I tend to do, here you are reproducing these ancient environments in virtual reality spaces, these ancient acoustic environments, but something that I've learned ever since, you know, more like spatial audio was devised you know, a few years ago, we started being able to like reproduce acoustic spaces in, the, in virtuality that, uh, it became clear that there was this whole new like that we don't need just a two-point or like in our case we're lucky enough at chill out gardens to have a six-point system the audience is enclosed within six function one speaker setups you know and so you've got this this opportunity for like a three-dimensional moving sound but with virtual speaker systems now you could put people inside of a rotating icosahedron of virtual speakers that are all coming through a pair of stereo headphones and you suddenly you're able to create uh environments in sound much the way that you can create previously unimaginable visual environments in virtual reality so like how do you feel like how do you feel that that's going to change our relationship to space and to time and and how do you feel that our you know what do you what do you feel will be constant as we move forward into these these kind of new visionary audio environments well, i think the big change is we've, we've kind of gone full circle from oral culture into kind of word-based culture with writing and then digital culture with and digital culture is kind of taking us back to all the culture. You know, phones, pretty soon you won't have words or buttons, you'll just talk to them. You kind of can already, it's a bit clunky, but it's very early. So I feel kind of going back to an oral culture, giving a lot more value again to the oral, to sound. Um, writing seems now just like a, an, an incomplete form of recording, now that we can 3D scan things or whatever, you know. Um, so the audiovisual as a as a summed thing, as a holistic thing, where sound and visuals can be produced.
visual, there's the hyphenating thing, mate. Makes it sound like it's two things. Mm. But look, the way that we perceive things is through a fused sense of looking and listening and touching and smelling and everything else. But looking and listening should be completely merged. And I think that's the exciting future for these things to be less separate and, and more integrated, more one rather than rather than two things. To have spaces where you're on a, a dance floor with 3D sound with lots of speakers, but also 3D projection. So you're in a, you can be in virtual spaces that are moving and shifting visually and orally. And of course, you're embodied, so you have sight and sound, you have touch and your body's there. So that sense of 3D embodiment, I think, has huge potential for the arts um, to kind of bring people to an experience that is more physical, is more engaged in engagement. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about that. I've been sitting on this idea for so long, for seven, eight years now, to the point that at first I wanted to be somehow involved in the development of a, you know this new creative media and now I'm finally actually watching it happen around me and in some respects like it's like you know I'm a surfer that missed the wave but in another sense I'm really excited to see that these um, these new uh, embodied gestural interfaces are are now at a point where you can control the visual elements and the auditory elements and make music and like just incredibly gorgeous animated sculptural performances in light in virtual reality like i hear that the latest version of tilt brush the uh, the the virtual reality painting app has animated musical brushes now and so that's what i wanted like this whole time i just wanted to dance and through the dance make something that people could watch and look at at the same time and that would you know would uh synesthize us that would you know start bridging reconnecting these senses that we've falsely dissociated from one another and it seems like we're really we really are like right on the cusp of that like android jones is out here uh demoing microdose vr which is his own painting application and i had a friend uh, who tried it last night and she said, you know, he, he specifically asked for a dancer to come up and, and wear the, the, the headset and show people, you know, to, to test it out in front of people and show people how it was used. Because it's like, it, it very much is about recognizing the music of the body and the architecture of light as, you know, that we cast around us, the architecture of sound, you know, and it seems like we're getting kind of closer to that sort of a dolphin consciousness where we're we're projecting three-dimensional uh, auditory, like vibratory glyphs into the space and like listening and reading sort of merge into one apprehension of that which is both auditory and visual, you know. So it's, it is a damn shame that we don't really have the the words for that, but maybe the dolphins will, will teach us yeah. the words for that. Once we decode the language, the dolphins language, yeah. understand how they speak. They probably understand how we speak already. Like, uh, like children to them, probably. Yeah. But, um, so, yeah, so where can people learn more about your work? And what? Well, the project we've been in, uh, the Music Archaeology Project, part of the European Music Archaeology Project, so they can go there. I've got a number of WordPress sites. One is, uh, what's it called? It's 
Songs of the Caves wordpress.com if you if you google Rupert Till then I come up all over the place my music is at uh, SoundCloud under Rupert Chill and there's a Facebook page for Dr Chill so yeah I'm, I'm very googleable and then everything pops up pretty easily cool. and when you introduced yourself to me just as a parting note you told me that you had a very uh, your doctorate is kind of a special situation I wish that we'd gotten into this earlier but you just tell people like uh, how it is that you're Dr. Chill? Yeah, well, I, I, I was kind of writing electronic music and um, I registered for a PhD to compose music and I just wanted to write ambient electronic music. I did put music for dance, but film music, but most of it was kind of electronic ambient dub chill out music. So, um, yeah, I genuinely am a, a doctor of chill out music. So, <laughs> so, probably that was 1999, I reckon I was probably the first doctor of electronic. <laughs> so, the only one. so rather a rather historic personality then. If if all of this thing that we're saying about the momentum of history is true, then then you really do stand there right at the uh, the end of this sort of uh, ivory tower accredited Western academic intellectual thing, and on the precipice of that Israel of descending angel of collective human activity unified through the DJ. Yeah, and it's nice to come here. I mean, I keep saying to people, I'm working. I'm not here on holiday. I'm, this is work. I'm, I'm here disseminating the results from a three and a half million pound European research project. Um, and I'm also having a lot of fun. Don't get me wrong. But, uh, it, it, and it's great because those sort of things are usually disseminated in obscure journals and literature and conferences. And nobody in the rest of the world gets to hear about them. So it's fantastic to come somewhere like Boom where people here at a music festival is such a different group of people and the connections you make with you know doing a podcast like this are, are very different from the connections you make in an elite overage hour culture like that so yeah. Yeah, it's been a great place to be well I'm, I'm super delighted to have met you and I'm really looking forward to your set tonight man it's, it was a pleasure to have you on the show cheers thanks not done here and we may not ever figure it out we probably won't figure it out